Good morning, folks. Welcome to Cornerstone. If you're here for the first time, can I give you a big welcome? My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders here. If you're visiting because you're on holiday, welcome to Liverpool, greatest city in the world. We trust that you'll have a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful time in our city. And folks, we finished the series last week in the book of Exodus, and we're going to be doing a short summer series starting next week in the book of 2 Peter and different elders from the church are going to be preaching over the month of August, which is exciting. But today we're just going to do a standalone sermon from John 4. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to John, John 4. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible as a gift from us to you. Please take that. So I'm going to read 42 verses. So bear with me, and they will not be taken off the time of my sermon as well, just to clarify. I'm going away for a few weeks, so I'm going to make the most. Here we go. Verse 1. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the cities to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship. The Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, I'm he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and they were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. 
Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, Rock, and Redeemer. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. This week, on Monday night, Sean and I got the privilege of spending a night with dear friends of ours, Anna and Stu Wood, in the Titanic Hotel. So you just go past the city center, the Titanic Hotel is right on the dock front, and it's right where Everton are building their new stadium. It's coming on, Evertonians, it's coming on, just so you know. And we had a wonderful time. Now, what's wonderful about the Titanic, it's like a big old like dock building, it's beautiful. But as you walk around the building, and even in the rooms, there are pictures, pictures and prints of old blueprints of the Titanic itself. We were trying to figure out, would these be the real things? I doubt it somehow. <laughs> that we just opened like Ikea. We're doing Ikea. No disrespect to the Titanic. Ikea's fine, by the way. Can I clarify? No disrespect if you've got Ikea stuff going on. But we looked, we looked and we said, I wonder if these are real. But you look all around, there are pictures and there are photographs of the man who built the Titanic all those years ago. All those years ago. Now, the reason why the hotel is called the Titanic Hotel, for those that didn't know, is that the, the Titanic's managing company, the White Star Line, had its headquarters in James Street, Liverpool City Centre. So when you see pictures of the Titanic, um, if you watch the film, you know, where Rose is on the, on the scaffolding flank or whatever it is and won't let the poor fella on, you know, at the end of the movie. There was plenty of room on that scaffold. I just want to clarify. Poor Jack could have gone on here. But as you, as you look, you'll see under the Titanic, Liverpool. Now, it was built in Belfast, but it was registered in Liverpool. And if you go down to the Albert Dock in the Maritime Museum, there is a permanent exhibition that gives you all the details of what happened regarding the Titanic and what happened on that day. And I've been several times and I've taken the kids and there was this one occasion where we took the children and one of the kids asked me three questions, I'll never forget them. And there were these questions. Dad, why wasn't there enough lifeboats? See, there's an official answer to that question. The existing board of trade required at the time that any passenger ship had to provide lifeboats to the capacity of 1,060 people. Now, there were nearly 3,000 people on the Titanic, so we wouldn't have even, even been enough. And the lifeboats were situated on the top deck of the Titanic, but the boat designers, even though they needed to have 32 boats, lifeboats on the ship, decided that the deck looked too cluttered, so reduced it to 20. They ignored the reality that the boat could sink. The other question that one of the kids asked me was, why were the lifeboats only half full? See, the reason why they were only half full is because the Titanic's crew had been poorly trained on how to use the lifeboat launching equipment. And as a result, the boat launches were slow, improperly executed, poorly supervised, and as a result, only half of the capacity of the lifeboats entered into the water. The crew were not well trained. And the third question was this, Dad, why did only two lifeboats go back for people who were in the water? The answer, because people were afraid and people didn't care. On that tragic night, 1,500 people lost their lives. Well over half the amount of people who were on the ship sailing to the United States that day. But many of them could have been saved. Folks, all around us, all around us, in our homes, in our families, in our streets, across our city, are people who are drowning and heading towards a lost eternity in hell under the judgment of God because of their sin. 
and we as God's people have the good news of the gospel. We as God's people have the words of eternal life. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are the lifeboats that have been deployed by the Lord Jesus to live and to function in the midst of people who do not know him, to share the good news about him with them, to live in a way that poses questions and to live in a way that presents a better story. All around us, folks, all around us. Now, when we talk about reaching people, when we talk about the evangelism, the weight of the task and the reality of the situation and the reality of knowing that friends and family and colleagues stand before God without Christ can be overwhelming. It can be overwhelming. Now, couple that, that overwhelming situation with self-condemnation that can arise when we feel like we haven't taken the opportunities that we should have taken. When we even find ourselves giving up believing that the people that we love and the people that we're sharing the gospel with are unsavable. It can be overwhelming. It can be self-condemning. So first and foremost, folks, I want you to know this. You may condemn yourself, but I want to assure you that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit does not condemn you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus even if we miss an opportunity. That's good news, amen? Good news. However, we need to know, and we need to see that even though God does not condemn us, we still need to see the importance of evangelism as individual Christians and as the church. It was the Lord Jesus in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20, before he ascends to be with the Father, says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So whatever comes next, folks, it, it doesn't really matter because he has all authority. It's all been given to him. And what does he say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus in his authority says, go and make disciples. Go and tell people as you live, go and tell them about me. Disciple them, show them what it means to live for me. Show them the better story. And the Apostle Paul, when talking about the priority of sharing the gospel in Romans 10, says this, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Folks, Jesus tells us to make disciples, and Paul says, how will people know if nobody tells them? If nobody tells them. Folks, we have a responsibility as his people to be obedient to what Jesus has asked us to do and to see this, that we have the words of eternal life and the people all around us need to hear those words in order for them to call on the one who can save them. So, who better than the Lord Jesus himself, who better than he can show us and help us along the journey on how to do this? And this account with the woman at the well in Samaria has seven things, seven things that I think can help us in our evangelism with all the people who are all around us. The first one is this, verses one to six, Jesus intentionally engages, intentionally engages. See, Jesus in verse three departs from Judea, which is in the south, and starts to make his way to Galilee, which is in the north. Now, the shortest route to get from Judea to Galilee is to go right through a place called Samaria. Now, for many Jews, this would have been an issue because you'll see in verse 9 within the brackets, it says in verse 9, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. The Jews did not like the Samaritans. Now, the Samaritans were a racially mixed group of people. They had part Jewish ancestry and they had part Gentile ancestry. 
And this all occurred, so the two kingdoms split. You had the southern kingdoms, you had the northern kingdoms. And in 1722 to 1721 BC, the Assyrians captured the northern kingdom. They captured Samaria. So they deported all Israelites of any substance out of the country, and they settled in the land people who weren't Jews, foreigners. And they intermarried with the surviving Israelites, and then as a result, there was this connection. So, so they engaged with some of their ancient religion, and they engaged with some of their culture. Now, after the exile of the Jews coming from Babylon, the Jews returned home, and the remaining Jews in the southern kingdom viewed the Samaritans in the north, not only as children of political rebels, but also those who had a religion that was tainted by various unacceptable elements because of the assimilation of Gentile paganism and Jewish misunderstanding of what it was to be the people of God. In fact, the Samaritans had their own law, they had their own Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they had their own version of it. They didn't worship in Jerusalem, they worshiped on a mountain called Mount Gerizim. So for the Jews to engage with Samaritans would mean that they would be defiled before a holy God, so they thought. So many people, rather than walking through Samaria, would cross across the Jordan and walk up the east bank of the Jordan, avoiding Samaria so that they could get to Galilee. But here, in, we read in verse 4 that Jesus, it says, had to pass. Now, what's interesting, he didn't have to, because he could have crossed the Jordan and gone off the east bank to avoid it. But it says there, he had to. Now, it made sense for him to walk through Samaria because it was the shortest route, but... The word had, the original word had, the Greek word is the word day, which means this, it is necessary. It is necessary. It was necessary. See, Jesus passed through Samaria because it was necessary for him to do so. It was necessary for him to stop at Jacob's well in the town of Sychar. And stopping at the well meant that he stopped at a major junction of all major roads in the area. See folks, Jesus intentionally walked through Samaria and intentionally stopped at that well and intentionally stopped at the major crossroads. Why? Because it, it was necessary. It was the necessary nature of Jesus passing through for him to meet this woman, for him to engage with this woman. See, folks, most of the lifeboats that were deployed when the Titanic sank intentionally didn't return when it was absolutely necessary for them to do so. My question to all of us is this. Are we seeking to intentionally engage with our neighbors, with our friends, with our family? with our community, with our colleagues, with our employees, with our employer? Are we intentionally engaging them with the intentionality to share the gospel with them? Are we intentionally thinking through how do we use our time? How do we use our resources? How do we use our conversations? How do we use our homes? How do we use our influences? How do we use our businesses? Are we intentionally thinking about where we shop, where we socialize, where we drink coffee, where we go for a pint, where we go for a meal, how we use our leisure time, where we send our kids to school. Does the reality that we have been called to share the gospel come into play at all when we think about all those things? See, what we see with Jesus, firstly, is that he intentionally engages. Intentionally. Number two, we see that Jesus cares more for the soul of this woman than he does about his reputation, verses seven to nine. See, a Samaritan woman comes up to the well and she comes to draw water and Jesus speaks to her and he asks her for a drink. Now, no, her response is one of shock and surprise, verse nine. How is it that you, a Jew, are asking me for a drink? Firstly, I'm a woman and secondly, I'm a Samaritan woman. Now, folks, a couple of things for us to notice here. To pass through Samaria for a rabbi, a teacher, was one thing. But then to share the jar of a Samaritan woman to drink from was another. 
complete defilement altogether as far as the, 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 Pharisees, the Pharisees would see it. Also, what you've got to notice here that this woman was collecting water on the sixth hour of the day, which would have been about midday, the hottest point of the day, where all the other women would have been collecting water at the beginning of the day or the end of the day or both. See, the reason we'll see later why she was doing that, but this was because this woman was a moral outcast. Not only was she a Samaritan woman, which would have been enough to destroy his reputation, but she was also an outsider in her own community because of her life circumstances and because of some of the choices that she was making. The woman was shocked because she knew that his interaction with her was abnormal for a Jewish man. But Jesus didn't care. He didn't care. He was at that well to speak and engage with that woman because Jesus cared more for his soul than he cared about what it may mean to his reputation in the eyes of other religious leaders, in the eyes of his own disciple. He cared more for his soul and engaged with her more than he did about himself being uncomfortable. See, folks, what's interesting here about Jesus' interaction with this woman in chapter 4 is that Jesus, just before in chapter 3, has had interactions with a religious leader called Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And this Pharisee, Nicodemus, sought out Jesus in the night because he didn't want anybody to know that he was because he wanted to understand more about what Jesus was teaching. See, what's interesting is that we see the contrast between him, Nicodemus, and the woman at the well. See, Nicodemus, he was a learned man, a powerful man, a respected man. He held orthodox theology. He was trained in it, whereas she was unschooled without any influence. She was despised. She was capable only of a, an understanding of a folk law religion. When Nicodemus was a man, a Jew, a ruler, she was a woman, a Samaritan, and a moral outcast, and Jesus cared for the souls of both of them. Of both of them. Folks, look who Jesus is engaging with across the two chapters. A religious male, a Jewish aristocrat, and an untrained female Samaritan peasant who may, had made a mess of her life. Jesus converses frankly with both of them, and he happily breaks the social and religious taboos to do so. Jesus was willing to cross any cultural boundary in order to have the conversation with Nicodemus, and in this case, with this lost woman. Folks, the questions that I have for myself, the questions that I have for us, the questions that I have for us who call Cornerstone Church our home, what do we care about? Do we care more about how we will be perceived by others if we engage with people who are different than us or different than our friends? Do we worry more about what people will think about us when we share the gospel with them? Folks, we need to be friends. And for those of you who are Christians, we need to be friends with non-Christian people. Please don't think that your life is wonderful because you don't know any non-Christians. That is an indictment on you. It's an indictment on us as a church. If we're happy not engaging with non-Christian people when the Lord Jesus himself says, go and do that. We need to have true friendships because true friends will share any good news that they've got. Any good news. Folks, we don't want to fall into the trap of thinking that just being good friends, just being good neighbors is enough. We need to share the gospel with them. Now, folks, I appreciate we have to think the appropriate times in the right way, and we have to do all that, but our intentions must be that we care more for their souls than caring about our own reputation and even caring about what they may even think of us. And actually, hear me when I say this, even care about losing that friendship. Because their soul and their standing before God in Christ is more important than you having a buddy. Look at Jesus. He didn't care what people thought. He cared for his soul. Yesterday I watched the football charity shield, community shield match between Liverpool and Man City. 
And I don't know if it's the prompting of God or any every time I'm in a football match or a concert or watching it on the telly, I have a moment, even in the midst of the chaos and the excitement and everything that goes on, I have a moment. It's usually when people are singing and there's no football happening. And I wonder to myself, how many of these people know Jesus? How many of these people? 30,000 people yesterday watched that game. 90,000 people will watch the women tonight in their football match. How many of those people know Jesus? And then for a moment, the crowd becomes not a crowd of football fans in my sight or in my mind, but a crowd of souls, just for a moment. When we work here on a Monday and a Thursday, you can hear all the kids playing in the yard over the road. It's a beautiful sound. It's a beautiful sound. And when you go and pick your kids up, you see all the parents and I, I often find standing on the corner just watching going, how many of these people know Jesus? And we're the lifeboat over the road. Sitting being their coffee and every day I, I buy a coffee. I speak to people every day, see them every day. There's others who do the same. How many people know Jesus? Even if the coffee may not be the best coffee. They know about us, our church. They know us. They know who we are. They know people who are part of this church. How many of them know Jesus? I go to the gym and I talk to people that I've known for years. Years. And I know that many of them don't know Jesus. And I, I skirt around it. Why? Because I care about what they think about me, Steve Robert. And I'm a pastor for crying out loud. They know that. They're expecting it anyway. Folks, do we care for them or do we care for how we will be perceived for sharing the gospel with them? I'm thankful that Jesus cares more for their souls than I do. Because he's the one that will save, but he's given me, given us the responsibility to tell people about him. Number three, Jesus reveals her real need. Verses 10 to 15. So in response to her surprise and Jesus asking her for a drink, Jesus then tells her, verse 10, if she knew, if you knew, if you knew who was speaking to you, and if you knew the gift that God wants to give to you, you'd be asking me for a drink. <laughs> you'd be asking me for a drink. And that drink, that gift, would be a drink of living water. See, the, what's interesting here in this interaction, the woman can't get past the reason why she's at the well. Why is she at the well? She's at the well because she needs water. She needs water to drink. And Jesus is changing. Look, you think this is your need, but your real need is this. Your real need is to come to me and to know me and to understand me. She's confused. See, she can't get past it because she's like, look, look, Jacob gave us this well and, and Jacob drank from this well. You're telling me that you can give me a drink that's living water, but you don't have anything to draw water with. How are you going to do that? And this is a deep well, deep, deep well. Jesus then reveals to her the difference between the water she is drinking and thinks that Jesus is offering and the living water that he's really talking about. Verses 13 and 14, have a look at that. He says this, look, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of living well, water welling up to eternal life. See, Jesus is saying people will drink of this water today and they'll be thirsty again tomorrow. But what I give is something that becomes a spring of living water, a spring of eternal life. Jesus is saying, what you think you need and what you think I am offering are not what you need. See, it's interesting. Despite Jesus revealing her need, she still doesn't understand the nature of her soul that needs the thirst quenching. Yeah, she asks for his living water that Jesus is offering, but she thinks, what does she think, verse 15? That even Jesus has explained, look, this is a living water that's gonna flow up into eternal life. She's like, look, give me some of this water because I, I'm done with coming to this well. <laughs> you see that? She still thinks, even though Jesus has explained. Folks, this woman like us, or all th she was thirsty like we are. And Jesus said he could quench that thirst 
Yes, her understanding was literally the water from the well. But the reality for all human beings is that we all search and seek to find satisfaction for the thirst of our souls outside of the Jesus who gives us the living water. We find ourselves doing that all the time, don't we? We do. See, folks, the people who we are wanting to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, which should be everybody, believe that the needs of their souls, the quenching of their thirsts, can be satisfied by everything else or everyone else rather than Jesus. They do. They're blind to the fact. And yes, some people may even see that Jesus may meet some of those needs, like giving them community or giving them purpose and giving them meaning. But that response is just like the woman at the well, thinking that Jesus can make it so she doesn't have to go to the well anymore. She didn't understand the nature of her true thirst. That is the same for us. We need to ensure that our friends and our neighbors and our colleagues understand the need that their souls are longing for. See, as you read through the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, what happened? That even though God had given them fountains of living waters, they dug cisterns for themselves that became broke, and they even drank of dirty water. We are so blind as human beings, folks. We are so blind. We are so dumb at times. Is that we move to something thinking that it will satisfy the depths of our souls, and it doesn't, but we still go back again, and we still go back again, and we still go back again. People don't know the nature of their thirst. And as a result, they reject the living water of Jesus and exchange it for broken toilet water. That's what broken cisterns are. When we as Christians have a better drink, we have a better story to proclaim. Isaiah 55 says this, Come who are are thirsty, come to the waters, come and drink for free. Folks, this is so important when we engage with, the, with people around us. We need to understand that as best as we can, what is it that our friends and our family are pouring all their hopes into? That shouldn't be too hard for us because we battle with that ourselves. And then we should understand the flaws in the foundations of what people are trying to meet their needs in. Finances, relationships, financial security, Identity outside of Jesus, purpose, even our children. If you build all your hopes in your children, folks, there is a flawed foundation, even with the precious little ones, because they're not God. They are not God. Like Jesus, when we are seeking to reach people, we need to be aware of where people are putting their hope outside of him as we engage with them. Number four, Jesus deals with her reality, verses 16 to 18. See, Jesus, after revealing her need, a real need, he then deals with their reality. He says this, verse 16, go, call your husband and come here. The woman's answer, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right. Because you've had five husbands and the one that you're with now is not your husband. What you're saying about yourself is true. See, the woman's reality was that she'd had five husbands. And the man that she was with currently was not her husband. Hence, her being a moral outcast and collecting water in the middle of the day. Now, folks, we don't know the reasons why she'd had five husbands. She could have been widowed. She could have been divorced or both. And divorce in that context, and divorce in that would have been the husband would probably enforced divorce. So she was someone who probably had been damaged because of loss, because of grief, because of brokenness. But also the choices that she was currently making by living a sexually immoral life, engaging with a man who wasn't a husband, was sinful. See, the reality for this woman is that she had been damaged by sin, but she was also in sin. Her reality was that she was a sinner, and Jesus in this conversation graciously reveals that to her. 
Jesus, because he is fully God, knew the depths of her heart. He knew her sin. He knew everything about it. That's what he, she runs into the town and says, come and listen to this man who's told me everything I ever did. Everything I ever did. Imagine, folks. What we need to see here and what is important for us as we engage with people who aren't Christians around us, that we, as we evangelize and share the gospel, we can't hide, folks. We can't skirt around the truth and the reality that we are sinners. And those who are seeking to share the gospel and those that we are seeking to share the gospel with are sinners. And without Christ, their destiny is hell. Without the lifeboats going back when the Titanic came down, the destiny of those people was death and everybody knew. Folks, we live in a world where we have the good news, we know that truth, but the people we're engaged with don't know that. They do not know it. And there are churches up and down the land that are afraid to talk about the reality of where sin takes us and where sin is for the people that we love the most, which is an eternity away from God under his judgment forever. And we as the church that have the news of eternal life, the good news of Jesus to proclaim the gospel with people are afraid to reveal the reality of their situation to them. What sort of doctor would you be? If you sat in front of a patient, but you were so fearful of them getting upset or so fearful of, of what they thought of you, when you had the news on a piece of paper that if they did not have this treatment, they would die of cancer within months. Folks, the reality is this. We cannot skirt around the truth that people are going to hell. The reality is this, that life is short. And the length of the next is long. Folks, as the people drowned in the sea, the lifeboats didn't have much time. There was an urgency. These people knew their fate if they stayed in the water. And folks, people need to know their fate and they need to know about the good news of Jesus who can save them. They need to know. And as much as it may be uncomfortable, as much as in our culture, oh, you don't believe that, do you? Oh, it was rubbish. No, we're all about love. Love is love. It's all about love. It's not about this. When the most loving thing that we can do is say, this is your destiny because you've sinned against a holy, glorious, perfect God who is a God of justice and cannot ignore your sin. But actually what he does, he sends his son to die in your place so you do not have to experience that. That is good news. That is good news, amen? See, the reality is we don't want to talk about it is because we're fearful or we don't care. I'm looking at faces that I know well. I know that you care. But let us not allow the fear to stop us from sharing the good news. Let us hold on to the promises of God knowing that his word will not return void and our labor is not in vain. Our labor is not in vain. Let's not skirt around it. Let's proclaim the truth. Number five, Jesus corrects her misunderstanding. Now, what's really interesting, like probably our friends, in what they do, she changes the subject very quickly. As soon as the sin's revealed, whoa, she changes the subject, doesn't she? And what does she say? Verses 21, 26, oh, sir, sir, I, I, you know, you're a prophet. You know, uh, verse 19, the woman said to say, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our father's where she's done this mountain. She basically turns it into a theological discussion. Whoa, let's not go there. But I've got something that I'd like to talk about. Creation. Let's talk about creation. Where did the designer, design, uh, designer from? dinosaurs come from? Where have they gone? What's gone on there? Let's talk about that. Sex before marriage. Let's talk about that. That's important. That's something that I'm interested in. Or the community of the church. I think it's wonderful that we talk about the church. When sin is revealed, when the reality is put on place, we change the subject. That's what she does here. That's what she does. And here the woman starts to asking about, where's the right place to worship? Is it here on this mountain? But you, the Jews, you say that it's in, in Jerusalem. And what does Jesus do? He deals with their misunderstanding. He deals with it. He doesn't skirt around it. He deals with it. He tells her that a time is coming when the location won't matter, verse 21. 
the people who Jesus calls the true worshipers, verse 23, they will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That true worship will not be a lo- about a location, but rather about God, in that the Holy Spirit will fill all worshipers, revealing them the truth of who he is and who is where does that be in Jesus, and we will worship. The location will not matter, because God in the Spirit will fill those who he is pursuing. And then he says to this, verse 22, he says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. It's bold, isn't it? Imagine going to your Muslim friends and saying, look, you are in darkness. You are in complete darkness. It's enough to get you arrested. Imagine. You are in complete darkness. He says, you worship what you don't know. But the Jews, they worship what they know because salvation comes from the Jews. Salvation. Remember, folks, Jesus was a Jew himself. He also then tells her that God the Father is seeking out worshipers, verse 23. It is about God pursuing his worshipers. It's not about people pursuing God. People don't pursue God, folks. So if we think that our friends are on a journey trying to find God, they're not. They're blind. So as we proclaim, we need to pray and ask God to open up their eyes. Salvation is the sovereignty of God completely. He opens eyes. He opens ears. He stares hearts. It's the regeneration of the Spirit in the heart of someone that saves somebody, that brings them to an irresistible point for them to pour their lives onto the Lord Jesus Christ. See, she, he corrects her misunderstanding and says, look, it is God that is pursuing You've not been seeking for God, but rather God is seeking you. God is seeking you even in all of your sin. That's good news, isn't it? It's not a God that's out here waiting for you to sort it out and come in. No, he's a God that steps in. He's seeking you. He's pursuing you. And in doing so, he'll expose your sin in his pursuit of you. He's offering you the living water of eternal life. Here, what does Jesus do? She corrects her mis- he corrects her misunderstanding. Folks, this is so important for us in evangelism because people may be even rejecting something that they think about God, which is not even true about God. We need to correct misunderstanding and we need to try and do that well. So therefore, we need to know who we are proclaiming. Don't we? We need to know. We need to know who he is. We need to understand who he is. We need to walk with people that may have done a little bit more thinking and, and understand the word and learn and grow. We also need to recognize that we're not on our own. That actually we can do this as friends and as inviting people into our community and gospel community and friendship groups that we can do this together to reveal when things become difficult and like they don't understand, can you help? Can we walk this through? See, What's really interesting is, I think in verse 25, she tries to change the subject again. She's like, oh, well, I've heard that the Messiah's coming. He'll sort all this out for us. When he comes, he'll sort it. It'll all pan out. That's what she says. When the one who's the Christ, he'll come. He'll reveal all those things. And what's Jesus' response? Verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm he. I'm clarifying for that for you. See, the one who sat by the well and asked her for a drink was none other than the promised Messiah. The one who could indeed provide living water. Jesus is the one that can give us satisfaction of the soul. He can answer our misunderstandings of the future. He is the one who is able to forgive of our sin. Folks, as we engage with family and friends, we need to remember that it is the good news about Jesus that is important. It's the good news about him. As quick as we can, we get to him. And the misunderstandings of theology and people understanding what life is and even what humanity is, let's not be distracted by that. It's about him. Number six. Jesus does the work that the Father has sent him to do. See, the disciples... Whilst all of this was going on, we're, having food, we're going to buy food. And they returned from the town with lunch for Jesus. And they were shocked. What's he doing talking to a woman? You can imagine them, go ahead, Peter, you have a word. <laughs> What's he doing there? 
What's going on? They don't say anything. But as they arrive, the woman responds to how Jesus has prophetically revealed to her the depths of her own heart. But also what we see as she responds in joy and runs off, we also see it reveals something of his heart. He was the answers to her longings. He was the living water that could quench her thirst because he was the promised Messiah. And as she ran off with complete joy, complete joy, leaving her jar, running out into the town, hurrying in, saying, come, come, come and hear a man who's told me everything that I have ever did. The disciples are quite oblivious to it. <laughs> this woman just ran off. What, she left the jar. What's going on? And they're like, do you want some food? Men, thinking of their bellies. But what was Jesus' response? I have food to eat that you do not know about. And they're like, who brought him food? We've been gone down the town. <laughs> and Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's what he said. The work that Jesus does is the work of the Father and doing the work of the Father nourishes him and satisfies him more than a sandwich could ever do. In his dealings with the Samaritan woman, Jesus was performing his Father's will and there was greater sustenance and greater satisfaction in that than any food. See, folks, the accomplishments of Jesus' mission is more important to him than anything that this world could offer him. Now, folks, maybe at times we are more concerned with our own situations, our own circumstances, our own comforts, our own needs, and these distract us from doing what we have been called to do. We have been called to make disciples. We have been called as the church to declare the excellencies of him who've called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, Jesus there, verse six, he was weary. He'd walked a long way. He was wrecked. He was tired. Folks, remember when Jesus went, before he went to the cross, he was in the garden praying, Father, Father, if there's another way, if there's a different cup to bear, please. And what does he say? Not my will, but yours. Whilst he's on the cross being killed, what does he say to his father? Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. Folks, like the people in the lifeboats when the Titanic sank, we may be scared in our life situations. We may be cold. We may have lost everything. We may have lost everyone. But we're still in the lifeboat. We're still in the lifeboat. We still have the gospel. And yes, folks, God cares for you in your situation. God is there in the midst of you. He has promised never to leave you. He is walking with you, encouraging you, supporting you in and through his people. But he has also called you to be a witness for him. And folks, from our experience as a family, it's in the times where we're cold, we're scared, we're frightened, and we feel like it's all fallen apart at the moment where those opportunities are far greater. Which leads us to my last point, verse, uh, number seven, verses 35 to 42. Jesus calls us to do the same. He calls us to do the same. See, in most cultures, there are expressions that serve as warnings against haste and hurry. Haste and hurry. Rome wasn't built in a day. Let's take our time. Good things come to those who wait. Slow and steady wins the race. Slow and steady. We saw that in the church sports day. Slow and steady. Steve Robbo wins the race. No, he didn't. Slow and steady wins the race. Now, in the Jewish culture, verse 35, the phrase that Jesus uses, there are yet four months, then comes the harvest, was that sort of saying. It's like, look, 
there's four months and then there's the harvest. Don't think that your crop's going to grow overnight. Take your time. Put it in. There's four months, then it's the harvest. Now, folks, this is true for ag the agricultural sense, isn't it? This is true. But it's not true for mission. Jesus is telling his disciples not to settle for an evangelistic mindset that has forgotten that when he is involved, miracles can happen. Now, folks, patience in God's mission is vital for the long-term faithfulness. I'm looking out at people where I know friends and family have been patient and God is doing a work in them now. It's wonderful. Wonderful. But the harvest isn't some time off in the future, Jesus says, verse 35. It's now. What does he say? Look up. I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. See, Jesus' arrival, Jesus' is coming, ushers in what the Bible calls an end time, an end time harvest in which sowing, sowing the seed and reaping the harvest coincide together. Christ is gathering his people, those who he has chosen, set his affections upon. He is gathering up the harvest. It's not about just waiting and it may happen. Yes, we have to be patient in God's time, but the harvest is all around us. Jesus says to the disciples, look up. He says to us, let's look up. When we watch the football tonight, look up. When we drop the kids off at school, look up. When we're in the airports, when we go on holiday, look up. When we're sitting around the pool, look up. When we're shopping in Asda or Tesco, look up. Look up, the fields are white with harvest. So the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. See, usually the sower would sow on his own, and then a few months later they'd employ the reapers. But in the mission of God, the sowers and the reapers rejoice together because we sow and we reap in the harvest of his people. Amen. So Jesus, with his eyes wide open, seeing the harvest field, intentionally engages cares more for the soul of the woman than his own reputation, reveals her real need, deals with her reality, corrects her misunderstanding, does the work that his father has sent to do, and graciously says to us, go and do the same. Look up. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white with harvest. Why? Because, folks, it is worth it. It's worth it. Verse 27 to 30, the woman runs off, leaves her jar into the town where nobody likes her to tell everybody, come and listen to this fella. And verses 39 to 42, what happens? Many Samaritans from the town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony. Many believed in him. He told me all that I ever did. So they all came to him. And they asked him to stay with them, please. And he stayed for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the women, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. They believed in the words that Jesus said. They believed in Jesus. They come to realize he is the savior of the world. Folks, doing the work that the Father has called us to do, witnessing for him, proclaiming him, seeing your family and friends and neighbors being saved and coming through the waters of baptism because they have met him, it's all worth it. It's all worth it. And you know what I love here, verse 36, when Jesus says, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life. This phrase, so that the sower and the reaper may rejoice together. What's that saying? That's saying that our joy is intrinsically involved with the mission of God. Maybe we are feeling a joylessness is because we're not engaged in the mission that God has called us to do. Maybe. There is joy, unspeakable joy, in seeing the people that you love and you know come to know the Lord Jesus. It's all worth it. It's all worth it four or five years ago seeing a big, tall, awkward younger man who arrives at the church because he fancies a young lady. And now five years later is leading us in worship. Because he came not knowing, not interested, no background, no nothing, comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and now serves him within five years. He's now married to somebody else, by the way. Just to clarify. What a joy. What a joy. 
What a joy it is to see somebody that your wife has prayed for for years come up out of the waters of baptism. What a joy it is to see neighbors who live across the street coming to know the Lord Jesus and being lifted. What a joy it is to see friends that I know people have prayed for for years walking with Jesus. What a joy, folks, and this was tough. Preaching into a camera week on week on week for a whole year thinking, what is the point? I like feedback, you can get that. Imagine what it was like for me just talking into a camera and Paul talking to a guy, it was a nightmare. It was that bad, I was even amen and myself on a Sunday morning. And then you arrive here in a new building, not knowing what God has done, and your own cousin walks through the door because he's been watching online and now knows Jesus and has been baptized. It is worth it, folks. It is worth it. Intentionally step in. In September, we will, there will be a, a wave of new people that arrive at Cornerstone Church. Students. People who think that they're Christians, people who know that they're not Christians, people who are Christians. It's going to be people moving into the city. We have homes, we have opportunities. Let's intentionally, every Sunday, have our own homes open and saying, come and, come and have dinner with me because this church, by the grace of God, has been built on people opening up their lives to others. Not courses, nothing like that. They're all good things, but it's been that. People re dealing with the reality of the situation of life. People dealing with the circumstances of the situation. Let us step into that. Let us not fall into the trap of the lies of my comforts and my concerns are the most important thing. No, that God may be wanting to use those things so that your friends and your family and your neighbors and people that you don't even know yet may come to know the Lord Jesus. Folks, it is absolutely 100% worth it. The church is not a cruise line, the church is a lifeboat. So let's get out. Let's drag in and pull in and persuade in and appeal in, whatever the circumstances. Let's not be people who don't care. Yeah, we may be fearful, but let's trust the one who says that he's going to be with us. And this summer, let's not use August as a time just to switch off and tap out of being a Christian. Choose August to realign our hearts, to spend time with those who maybe we've not spent time with. Let's, whoever put, God puts you next to on a plane may be the opportunity for you to speak. I spoke to a professional footballer the other week on a train, an ex-professional footballer. I'm not going to give his name. He looked a little bit like me and I played like him. Those who know football will understand. 45 minutes, I sat next to him, talked football, shared the gospel with him. The guy's in tears. I pray that that man comes to know the Lord Jesus. I had to, had to. He asked me what I did. How'd you do that? It was there on a plate. Just added it in. Who knows? So, somebody may enjoy the joy of reaping. Let's not walk away condemned, folks. Let's not walk away discouraged. Let's walk away that our Jesus stepped in to save us and called us to do the same. Let's follow his example for his glory. Let me pray, and then we'll share communion. Father, thank you and praise you for your kindness to us, your grace to us. Jesus, thank you that you've saved us. And we ask, Lord, that you would save the people that we have in our minds now. Fill us with your spirit. Enable us to be brave and bold. And Father, any salvation comes from you, so we want to pray. Help us to pray more. Help us to trust you more before we do anything. So in the choir, we pray, Lord, for those people that need saving, that need you. Give us opportunity with those people we pray for your glory's sake. Folks, the Bible tells us, and Paul said this. Paul said, I preach cru Christ crucified, that's it. All I'm going to preach is Jesus. The most important thing is him. And when we proclaim it, and when we live it, and now when we remember what he's done, we proclaim Christ's death till he comes. Death and resurrection. So when we eat, let us remember that we who were broken in him have now been made whole. Amen? Well, made whole? 
We're like the woman who's legging off without the water jar going, come and listen to this. And when we drink, let us remember that it's his blood that washes the foulest clean. And his blood avails and avails and avails and avails for us. It avails for me. It avails for you. And the Bible tells us that we eat and drink till Jesus returns. And when he returns, what a wonderful joy it would be knowing that he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. Not because of us, but because of him. But what a joy it would be for them then to just look over your shoulder and go, well done, good and faithful servants, and behind you are the people you're praying for now. What a joy. We're going to enjoy that day because of what he has done. So as we eat and as we drink, let's not forget those that we're praying for. Ask Jesus to move. Let's look around. Who can we pray with? And enjoy this wonderful means of grace that reminds us of who we are in him as his people. Let's eat, let's drink, and let's be thankful. Let's do that now.